I hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And just from the bottom of Bethany and I's hearts, just want you to know we are so to say we are thankful to be here, for us to say thank you for calling us here. I don't know better words because I just don't. And I don't even know better words in Greek or Hebrew or any other language that I know. But I just want you to know from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. We are so overjoyed to be here. And I hope that y'all have had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, we are going to take a one-week break from Philippians this morning. And it's neat to see uh, just the Lord orchestrate because none of those songs were in any way planned for the passage we're going to look at this morning. But every one of them have prepared our heart and worship to look at the passage we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. If you're not familiar with Psalm, let me give you a real helpful hint. Just hold your Bible open and let it drop right in the middle, and you'll probably get to Psalm. Psalms 105. Listen to what it says here at the beginning. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory, boasts, take your pride in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength and seek his face continually. Remember his wonders, which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So church family, Psalms 105 is an, is an interesting psalm and in that it's, it's doing the opposite of what normally we would do in a sermon. It's, and it's telling us what to do. It's applying it right off the bat because every one of the 10 or 11, depending on if you count repeats or not, every one of those statements are not suggestions, but imperatives. Look back at with me. Oh, give thanks. It's not just a cry of a praise. It's it's a command to you and I, give thanks to God, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, meaning call upon who he is, his, his name is his attributes, his greatness, his glory, his love, his power, his might, call upon his name, cry out to who he is, make known his deeds among the people, literally inform, tell, declare. And when it says people there, it's the word for nations. It says, make known, make known what God has done to all the people, to all the nations. It says, sing to him, sing praises to him. Let your heart be filled with song. It says, speak of his wonders. To speak or to meditate on his wonders, his wonderful acts, his might, his power, the things he has done. Glory, boast, take pride in, be proud of his holy name. Literally, may your pride, your boast be because of who God is. We're proud because God is who he is, and, and we're proud because we belong to him if we're in Christ. Glory, let your glory and boast seek the Lord. Those who seek the Lord, let your heart be glad. Remember the things he has done. All of these are commands. And what they describe holistically and in their entirety is about every possible way you and I can live out and respond to God in worship. 
So if you want to know what the point of the sermon today is, church family, it's worship the Lord. It's worship the Lord. It's worship the Lord on the basis of who he is, on the basis of of what he's done. Why? Because if you are in this church family and you are part of this church family, then that means that you and I have responded to Jesus Christ, to the offer of the gospel, to place our faith in Christ, and Christ responds in his grace to save us. Not because we were born in right relationship, we weren't. Not because of who our families are, not because of how much we've read our Bibles, not because of how many times we've come to church, not because we used to be really good with our offering envelopes and always check all five boxes off for the week. But solely because Jesus Christ and his goodness, the Holy Spirit, convicted our hearts that we were sinners and we heard the gospel message, who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf and responding and repentance and faith. He saves us in his grace. And if that is true, church family, then the Lord is our God. And the call today is to worship him. But what exactly about him are we responding to in worship? Well, walk with me. Look back at verse eight now. God has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. So what does it say? says that God has remembered his covenant forever, this covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, this covenant that with Israel, this covenant that at the heart of this covenant is this, this reality that I am going to make a people for my glory and I am going to give you my people a land for your possession. This covenant that first starts with his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and then affirmed to Isaac later on, affirmed to Jacob later on, and then ultimately Israel as they are coming out of the promised land. And they come there to Mount Sinai. Or as, Sorry, I said promised land. Let's correct that. As they're coming out of Egypt to go to the promised land, that would be key. God didn't take us out of the promised land. He takes us to the promised land. Let's just be clear. I don't want... Something crazy going on here. As they're there at Mount Sinai, having come out of captivity, and God walks them through and covenants with them to be their God and they to be his people. Here's what we are praising, church family. It says he remembers his covenant. Or put this way, he is faithful to fulfill his covenant. Now, it's important for you and I to understand, what do we mean by covenant? What is a covenant? A covenant is not just a Bible promise, all right? It's not a Bible promise. Here's why it's not a Bible promise, because a promise is easily tossed around, right? A promise, I promise to go take the trash out, and then the trash doesn't come out, right? Promises are easily entered into, and they're easily broken. That is not what a covenant is. A covenant is a binding agreement in which two parties enter in, and and the covenant itself, what makes it sacred is the kind of bond that you are agreeing to. And the covenant is dependent upon the one who makes the covenant. Here's what's interesting. God's covenant with Abraham wasn't Abraham doing anything. It was God making a covenant to Abraham. And the way you would signify a covenant is you would take an animal, cut it in half, set the two halves, and, and those entering an agreement would walk between in order to say, if I break the covenant, what, what, what's done to this animal will be done to me. 
Yet Abraham doesn't walk through, only God walks through because it's God's covenant. And this is the basis for what we would call in Scripture the Old Covenant that you see take place in full at Sinai with Israel. But church family, here's the key for you and I today. You and I do not live under the Old Covenant. When it comes to understanding and applying this psalm into our life, we need to understand you and I live under the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus said on the night when he was betrayed, right? He took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant, the new covenant. What, what's involved in the new covenant? What, what is there? Well, one, we know from Genesis chapter three, before Abraham's ever on the scene, the moment after we sin, God is there saying in the garden that he's got a solution. He looks at the serpent and he says, the seed of the woman will be at enmity with you. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. You have in Genesis 3.15, the first statement of God that he's going to send a unique Messiah who will absolutely destroy the issue of Satan's sin and death. You see this play out all throughout. You see, you see God create. You get the covenant with Abraham. You see Israel come in. They're to be God's chosen people. We see going forward. All of a sudden, you get to the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah makes this statement. As the people of Israel are in rebellion against God, Jeremiah makes this statement on behalf of the Lord that God is up to a new work, a work, a new covenant, where he will take his law and he will actually write it on our hearts. We're, we're in this new covenant, what the blood of boats and bulls and goats could not do, according to the book of Hebrews, the precious blood of Christ can do. Amen. And that is to once and for all, to any one of us who respond to Jesus Christ, completely and totally wipe away and wash away every aspect of our sin because Jesus took the punishment for it and became it on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is a covenant that restores us and reconciles us to God himself in the relationship we were made for. It's a covenant that gives us a purpose. What is God's desire, John 17, that we might know him. And what does it mean to know him? Well, Jesus says that's what eternal life is. It's a covenant wherein God purposes his aim in our lives is to conform you and I to the image of Jesus. And he will take every situation, good, bad, and ugly, and he will work it all for his good. And the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a covenant to, to make us a people of his own possession. It, it's a covenant that we enter into by grace through faith. It's a covenant where we are adopted as sons or daughters, where we are totally transformed and ultimately will be restored. It's a covenant that gives us eternal hope. It's a covenant that means he is coming back to take us home where we will see him and dwell with him forever. It is a covenant that we've already seen in Philippians chapter one, one of the first weeks we were in Philippians, where this work of this covenant, God has started in each one of our lives who are in Christ. And Paul says, this I am sure of, that he who started this good work in you will bring it to completion. Church family, what we worship today is we worship the fact that God is a faithful God and the covenant that he has entered into, you and I have entered into with him by the blood of Christ in which we are reconciled as sons and daughters to the most high. This covenant in which God is working out that salvation in our lives. This covenant in which means Jesus is coming back soon. He is faithful to do it, and no one will stop him from completing it. 
This is what the psalmist is, is writing and is saying. He has remembered his covenant. God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. And this is why we worship him. But what does it mean that he's a covenant-keeping, faithful God, a God who's faithful to keep out his covenants? How does that play out? Well, look with me at verse 12. When they were only a few men in number, talking about Abraham, very few, and they were strangers in the land. They wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. God permitted no man to oppress him. He reproved kings for their sake. He said, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. How is God's faithfulness to his covenant demonstrated? It's demonstrated through his protection. Through his protections. You see that there in, in verse 12? They were, they were only very few. I mean, think logically with me. God has literally come down and he's told Abraham, Abraham, you are one man. You are 75 years old. You have no children. You've never been able to have children. But you're going to have a child. And through this child, I am going to make a vast and mighty nation, more numerous than the stars that you can see. Unless some of you go, well, when I look up at the stars, I don't see very many stars. Just remember, this is Abraham in the middle of the night before there was any kind of light pollution. There would have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars shining. And he said, I will make your descendants more numerous than that, Abraham. Well, how do you get from Abraham to there? Well, slowly. And here's Abraham. And by the way, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And here's the land. And so Abraham goes, and, and they're small and process that. Abraham and all of his initial descendants, they are in the land of Canaan, surrounded by foreign peoples who have no reason to respect them. But if you notice in Genesis, Abraham and his children are not really sought to be eliminated. There's a couple hiccups, and in every one of those hiccups, God protects them. Why? 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 This doesn't make human sense. How does this one little family survive in the midst of this foreign land, bouncing around from foreign nation to foreign nation? Because God is faithful to keep his covenant, which means he protects his people for his purposes. He protects his people. He rebuked, rebuked kings, he rebuked Egyptian Pharaoh. He, he saves Lot's family from Sodom and Gomorrah. He rebukes others. You see this all throughout. So what does this mean in you and I's life? If we say that God is faithful... What does it mean that he protects you and I, church family? Well, let me just give you a couple simple thoughts. First Corinthians chapter 10 says that God will never allow you and I to be tempted beyond what we're able. But that when we face any temptation, there will be a way out in Christ Jesus that we might be able to endure it. How does God protect us in the new covenant? It means this, that if you are a child of God, you will never face temptation to sin that you do not in the power of Jesus Christ within you possess the ability to say no to. Amen. Yet how many times do we face temptation and we just go, I just, I just can't, I just can't resist. I just can't. If you're in Christ, there's the ability to say no. And not just to say no, here's the distinction. What does he say there in 1 Corinthians 10? The way out in Christ that you may be able to endure it. Which means you may say no to that temptation. You may put up that shield of faith and the enemy may keep pounding on it. But it doesn't matter how much he pounds all day and night and how many fiery missiles he shoots. You and I in Christ are able to endure it 
because God protects us by keeping us from ever being tempted beyond what we could say no to in his power. We see in Psalm 91, Psalm 91 mentions that we're literally, there are times that there is a physical protection on our lives. Now that physical protection doesn't mean we're protected from anything and everything, but it does mean that we are protected physically from things that would hamper God's plan and purpose in our lives. I think of stories, uh, I know a pastor who, when he was in college, they were uh, on, a, on a trip in the middle of the night. His mother woke up in the middle of the night, thought to pray for her son. He prayed for her son and went back to bed, not knowing that at that very time she was praying the driver of that car got sleepy. The car veered off the road, flipped. They all should have died, and somehow they all walked away unscathed. At times, there is a physical protection over our lives. It's not just spiritual. At times, it's even physical. We see in Romans 8, 31 through 34, what does it say? I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angel nor powers nor principalities nor life nor death nor anything in all creation shall what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, there is the protection of his loving presence. In the Old Testament, his presence always meant his people could not be conquered. And what does he say to you and I? I am with you always. End of discussion. There's a protection of his presence, a protection of his love. There's a protection of his sovereignty. We see this even in heartbreak in the life of Job. Everything that happens in Job's life not one thing happens that the Lord is not completely and totally in control over. Now, don't miss me. I didn't say that the Lord caused what happened. But not a thing touched Job's life that God did not allow permission to touch. There is God's protection over our lives. It doesn't mean that he keeps us from all harm, hardship, and suffering, but it does mean that he will protect you and I from that which would ruin and devastate his covenant purposes in and through our lives. And so in a world where when you turn on the news every moment of the day and you now see something in some way that is threatening to the safety of you and I's lives, quite literally, we can worship a faithful covenant-keeping God who keeps his covenant by protecting us, Amen. even when there is hardship and suffering. But it's not just his protection. Look what else. It says in verse 16, and he called for a famine upon the land. God called for this famine. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free and made him the lord of his house, the ruler over his possessions, to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. You see, God doesn't just protect, he also refines. You see what it says about Joseph is who it's talking about. It says, one, it says, God called for a famine to come upon the land. Now, we don't have time today to unpack that mystery, but there's an instance where God himself is taking action to allow and to cause hardship for a greater purpose. He called for a famine upon the land, but look what he says. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. You want to know a mystery of God's sovereignty and man's consequential free will actions? That statement just poetically summed it up. Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave into slavery. 
down into Egypt. That was an action, uh, heinous and, and wrong before God. From a human perspective, evil. Yet God said he used it to send a man in front of his people. He sent Joseph. And notice what it says about Joseph. They, they afflicted his feet in fetters. He himself was laid in irons, or literally, his soul was bound in chains. Because if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, he goes and he languishes for years upon years. He goes down, works in Potiphar's house, faithful, is promoted, is falsely accused, is thrown in prison. And that translation saying his soul was in chains means it wasn't just physically hard. There was a hardness of soul and spirit. As Joseph wrongfully suffered, wrongfully in prison for crimes he did not commit. But notice what it says. Until the time that his word came to pass, talking about the dreams that Joseph had where, where it showed his brothers bowing down. Until the time came to pass, look what it says. The word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord refined him. For all those moments where at times Joseph may have, 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 have felt the despair of God, where are you, God, what's going on? Here I am enchained. Here I am stuck. Here I am in, in, in the, the, dark, the dark dungeon, in the pit, my soul in anguish, my body captive. It says that all of that time in the midst of what was wrong, sinful, and humanly wicked, it said God was testing, was refining him. The idea of refining is that idea that you take a metal, a precious metal, a valuable metal, and you put it in a furnace and you heat it until it's so hot that it's malleable. And then you proceed to take it out and you beat it. And as you beat it, the imperfections are pulling out and the metal is strengthened made more pure, becomes more valuable. This is what God was doing in this time where, where Joseph was suffering. God was refining him because I want you to think about this, church family. Joseph eventually is released from prison. What does Pharaoh do? He does exactly what this passage says. Pharaoh releases him, sets him over the ruler of the people, sets him over all of, his, all of the, the rulers of his possessions, makes him the number two most powerful man in the land, second only to Pharaoh. And then Joseph's brothers, because of this famine, the 11 brothers show up coming to get grain. And can you imagine if there is even a hint of bitterness in the heart of Joseph when that moment happens? And Joseph looks at his brothers and says, surprise, guards arrest them. Let me ask you a question. Which of Joseph's brothers is the messianic line? It's not Joseph. It's Judah. And if Joseph were to have taken action against his brothers, major problems. But see, God doesn't leave things to chance. God was faithful to refine, to take what was evil, to take what was hard, to take what was suffering, to take what was difficult, and to refine and to prepare Joseph for the moment, to raise him up for the moment where this is what would happen. Look at verse 21. Israel now comes into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and God caused his people to be very fruitful. 
This small people surrounded in a land that has been promised to them, but they have no ability to occupy, no ability to conquer, and they have no protection. All of a sudden now, God has sent a man in front of them who is the number two most powerful man in the land. The family comes down. They are now protected. They are now guarded, and they are now in a place where they can multiply and multiply and multiply where they can now grow into a people the size of which can go and inhabit the land God has caused them. You see, church family, one of the ways that God is faithful to fulfill his covenant in our lives is to refine you and I. He refines us. James 1, right? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing what? The testing, the refining of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect that you may be what? Mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Quite literally saying that church family, if you and I want to be mature and complete, if we want to, to be the man or woman that God has called and made and is working and purposing in us to be the way to get there is to receive from his hand the refining fire, the, ver the trials of various kinds that would produce an enduring faith. He refines us. We see this in 1 Peter 1. We see this in Hebrews 12 where it talks about his, his discipline. And his discipline in our lives is both corrective and instructive. Sometimes we receive his discipline because we step out of line. Sometimes we receive his di discipline precisely because we're doing what is right. And he is instructing and growing and training us, training us to not depend upon ourselves, training us, testing us to see if we are ready to move deeper, correcting us if there are sinful ways. He is preparing us. And he will not let us fail his preparation when we try to refuse his testing and refining hand. He will bring us back in the back. And it's why often you and I find moments where we have an encounter with the Lord. It's, it's the mountaintop, the spiritual high. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves living a lot in the valley, the everyday, the mundane, where the darkness seems to come over, where we find thorns and hardship and sorrow and suffering. What is God doing in those places? He is refining us. And how sad if we spend all our time in the valley simply complaining to get out instead of resting in the hands and heart of our Savior, trusting his faithfulness to prepare us for what he would call us to. God refines us. He didn't just refine us, though, but he, he demonstrates himself. Look with me. We're going we're gonna to read through this part. I'm going to skip over a little bit. Look what he says in verse 24. He causes his people to be fruitful. He makes them stronger than their adversaries. The people of Israel go down to, to Egypt, and there in Egypt they grow so large, they are now outnumber the Egyptians. They are more powerful, so God turned the heart of the Egyptians to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servant. He sent Moses, his servant, Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Egypt. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood, their fish to die. And it goes on to describe over the next several verses, all of or nine of the 10 plagues. Concluding in 36, where he says, God also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their vigor. 
What is God doing there? How is God faithful remembering his covenant? Because he is demonstrating his glory and his power. He's demonstrating his glory and power. It's through his demonstration. What is he doing there in Egypt? Well, every one of those plagues, you see, now, now, now Israel is large enough. They're ready to go in and inhabit the land. God has prepared them, but they've got a really cush gig in Egypt. They're respected. They're, they're, they've got safety. They're under the, the protection of the most powerful, influential, wealthy nation in the world at that time be really tempting to stay in that kind of cush lifestyle. But God works and turns the hearts of the Egyptians against them. It's clear there's no place for them there. It's now a place of hardship, suffering, captivity, enslavement. But God sends a deliverer to pull them out. And through that deliverer, he works these wonders. And every one of those plagues was designed to specifically assault an Egyptian deity those plagues were not just to break the Egyptians so that they would release the Israelites. They were also demonstrating to every Egyptian willing to see and willing to hear that the God of the Israelites is the one true God who is greater than their gods. At the time that God is trying to break the Egyptians to deliver his people out, he is also proclaiming his glory and greatness because he loves the Egyptians just as much as the rest of the world. God demonstrates his glory, his greatness, his power in and through our lives. It says in Matthew 6, let your good works shine before men that they would what? That they would praise your Father in heaven. It says in 2 Corinthians that we are the aroma of Christ to life and to death, to life to those who are being saved, to death those who are perishing. You and I as, as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters of God, as people in the new covenant, one of the ways God is going to be faithful is to demonstrate his power and glory to us, but also to demonstrate his power and glory through us. And as we've seen in Philippians, many times that's through trial and suffering. That's what Paul says there when he says, look, be assured, church in Philippi, my chains here in Rome have not hampered the gospel. They've actually caused the gospel to become more clear and go further than it ever would have gotten otherwise. So church family, if we're going to worship God who is faithful, who demonstrates his glory and his power, then you and I need to understand Often he likes to demonstrate his power and glory through our lives, always by his grace, many times through our weakness. Because it's when we are weak that he is strong, his grace is sufficient. And when do you think his power is most evident? When it's easiest to give us the glory or when it's so utterly beyond clear that it wasn't you and it wasn't me, it was all him. So be prepared, church family. If we want to worship God who is faithful, we've got to be prepared. If he's going to demonstrate his glory and power, we've got to be prepared for weakness. But he doesn't just demonstrate. He provides. Look at what it says in verse 37. He brought them out with silver and gold, and among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. 
He spread a cloud for a covering, a fire to illuminate by night. They asked, he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and the water flowed out. It ran in dry places like a river for he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. He brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a shout. He gave them also the land of the nations that they might take full possession of the fruit of the people's labor. Here's, here's what he says. He says, God provides. Literally, Egypt doesn't just let him go. Egypt says, here's a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity to leave. They pay them. They pay them with swords. They pay them with weapons. They pay them with money. They pay them with clothes. Israel leaves Egypt having quite literally robbed the nation because God needed to provide for a people to go inhabit a land who had no weapons and no money. They had no weapons to fight and defend, and they had no money for commerce, and now God provided. And there in the wilderness, where going back to refinement, God would seek to refine his people, that they would understand it's not their greatness, not their power, not their might that got them out of Egypt, and that will carry them into the promised land. It's his alone. There in that wilderness, he provided for them as well. Was it the seven-course gourmet meal from the five-star restaurant? No. Was it sufficient for them to know him truly, to love him completely, and to follow him faithfully? Absolutely. God provides. And not only that, but when they come into the land, the promised land, it said that they inherit the fruit of other people's labor. Why didn't God just get rid of all the peoples in the land and give it right to Abraham? Because if God had done it right then and there for Abraham, he wouldn't have had the ability to inhabit the land, to care for the land, to, take, to, 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 to grow the crops in the land, to keep the soil good in the land, to defend the land. So all these people who've been in the land, now Israel inherits the way they've kept the ground and kept the land because God is a God who provides. And church family, as he is faithful in his covenant in our lives, listen to just some of the simple ways he provides. Second Peter 1 through 3 says he, is, he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, if I'm in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 makes a statement that he is, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all of the promises of God are in Christ Jesus are amen. 2 Chronicles 16 says that the eyes of the Lord scour the earth, looking for the person whose heart is seeking him to greatly aid. Let me translate into real simple language for you and I today, church family. If you are in Christ, you lack nothing to know him to love him, to follow him. Billy Graham does not have something in his relationship with God that you don't already have. The apostle Paul does not have something in his relationship with God that you and I don't already have. If there's a difference in Paul's faith and our faith, the difference is simply in his willingness to believe and worship God at his word and our lack of willingness to believe and worship God at his word but not a difference in content of what God has given or not given because God has provided in the new covenant church family everything we need to know him, to love him, and to follow him because he is faithful to fulfill his covenant. He provides, he demonstrates, he refines, 
He protects. But there's two other aspects of what he does to fulfill his covenant that, that are not necessarily hidden here in the text, but maybe don't just scream as loudly to you and I. And it's this. He is faithful to fulfill his covenant in his timing under his control. Did you catch this? You, you look at this passage and it says that God made a covenant with Abraham. And you go, wow. And then you see all these things and we can read it in about 90 seconds. And it's really satisfying to our 21st century fast-paced American hearts. But in reality, from the moment God gives that covenant to Abraham to the moment he brings the people into the land in verse 44, that's 450 years. The reality is, church family, the moment you came to faith in Christ and that new covenant was started in your life and my life, we didn't instantly all of a sudden understand everything and have no, no troubles and, and are fully refined and are ready to go. No, you see, God, he absolutely protects and he absolutely refines and he absolutely provides and he absolutely demonstrates. But in our lives, he does it on his time, not our own. There's a great little story a, a young man looked at a college professor and said, uh, why isn't there a quicker way to get the degree? Why isn't there a quicker way to get my diploma? And the professor, said, the, 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 the professor said, well, actually, there is. But it depends on what you want to be. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, well, when God desires to make a squash, he takes six months. But when God desires to make an oak tree, he takes 100 years. Desire of what is it that God is up, is up to? What is it that God is moving in our life? We see his timetable all throughout scripture. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Abraham, from the moment he's told he'll have a child to the child, 25 years. Joseph, around 20 years in prison. Moses, at the age of 40, according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Moses believes and knows that God wants to bring deliverance to the people of Israel through his leadership. And he tries to step up and do that. But when he murders the Egyptian and the Israelites turn on him, he flees. And God takes 40 years to break Moses, to prepare Moses, to call Moses, to send Moses. David, 10 to 15 years from the time he's told he'll be king to when he assumes the throne. Our own savior spent 30 years in total obscurity. You see, church family, God takes his time. He is working from eternity, for eternity, to eternity, in and through our lives and as he works in his time, it's all under his control. Did you catch that in the passage? There's a lot of different things in this passage. Some are things God initiated. Some are things that, that, that are actions of, of broken man, sinful man. Some are actions of righteous man. But there's not anything that happens that derails God's plan. Amen. So there are billions of us on the boat called life. But not a one of us is at the helm of the ship determining the destination. Amen. Church family, God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. And I know as we hit into the holiday seasons, we come in after a week of Thanksgiving. Some of us in this room, we are on cloud nine. It was a wonderful week of Thanksgiving. Some of us, this is a hard time of year because it brings up hurts, people we've lost, people who are no longer there to celebrate. Some of us are entering in this time, things are going well and smooth in life. Some of us are entering into this time and, and things are not smooth. Health is bad. Uh, work is out. We, we turn on the news and it's just story after story after story after story that tells you that the world is just terrible. That's what the news pretty much has to say today. And it's only getting worse. 
And it's easy, depending on where we are at on the journey, to look and go, God, where are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? It's easy in the mundane days when we're not on the spiritual mountaintop to say, God, what is taking place? What is going on? But understand that this psalm was actually written for the people of God who were coming out of 70 years of exile in Babylon, returning to their land where the walls were torn down, where they had no protection, where they were open for assault. And the psalm was written to a people beaten, battered, broken down to remind them that God is faithful. He's faithful to keep this covenant. He is faithful to finish this work that he has started. And because he is faithful, it does not mean that we cannot struggle. It doesn't mean we can't shed our tears. It doesn't mean we cannot wonder, but it means we can wonder at his feet because he is faithful. It means that we can weep at his feet because he is faithful. It means that when we struggle and it's dark and we don't know where to go, we can seek the Lord and his strength continually. It means when we wonder, God, where are you? We can remember the wonders which he has done. It means when we're around people who are, who are wondering what is going on and, and what is all of this amounting to, we can make known the glory of his ways. It means at all times we can give thanks because church family, he is faithful to do the work he started in our lives. And our call as a response to what we see here today, his protection, his refinement, his demonstration, his provision on his timing under his control, our response is to worship. Amen. So pray with me. Father, this psalm always reminds me and convicts me. It has brought me up from pits many a time. It reminds me that it's easy to just get caught in the wondering and the hardship and where's this and what is going on and, and to forget the commands to sing, to make known, to remember, to meditate to speak loudly and gladly of who you are, to, to take my boast and pride, not in me, not in my ability, not in the safety of the world around me, but in the fact that you are who you are. And by your grace and because of your precious shed blood, Jesus, I am yours. And there is no better position to occupy than that of being yours, Lord, because you are faithful. So Lord, may our hearts not look about us in this world, but may our hearts look up and see you and behold you. God, may we turn our eyes to you in wonder and worship. Because in this Psalm, Lord, you say at the very end in verse 45 that you do all of this, that your people might obey your word forever. So Holy Spirit, as you move in this place, be worshiped, be worshiped in responses that are fitting the way you're moving. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.